Welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation at americascannabisconversation.com. And here's your host, Dan Perkins. Hello and welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation Weekend Preview. I'm your host, Dan Perkins. First up today is Dr. Jordan Tischler, a longtime visitor to this program, and he's going to talk about how medical practices are changing because of the pandemic and after the pandemic. Next up is Cody Walker, former military vet turned extracts operations expert from the Bay Area. He owns a company called Bayride Extracts, and he's going to talk to us about growing and cultivating cannabis in the California market. Our third guest is Dr. Beverly Potter, who is a psychologist, and she specializes in career and workplace issues. In today's work environment, with it, cannabis still being illegal on a federal level, but more and more states are adopting it, employers and employees have to know what the limits are until we get commonality of the law. And our final story is from Ben Thomas, the director of the Department of Agriculture for the state of Montana, and he talks about the online exchange. This is an experiment of how they bring buyers and sellers together on the distribution of hemp products to the marketplace through an exchange that the state put up but lets the private sector run. So those are four great guests. And if you want more information about these four guests, you can go to w420radionetwork.com, go on the homepage, and you'll see a description of each of the people and their contact information. I'm Dan Perkins. Now let's join the show. Welcome back to the conversation. And joining us today is our very own cannabis doctor on call, Dr. Jordan Tischler. Today, I've asked him to speak about how his practice has changed because of COVID. And, and in addition, uh, additionally, I want him to talk about the professional association that he is a, a founder. So welcome to the conversation, doctor. Oh, thank you so much. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So doctor, tell the audience how your practice has changed because of COVID-19? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, Prior to COVID, I had not one but two offices serving different geographic areas. And when COVID came along, I sort of looked at that and thought, you know, I like sitting face-to-face with my patients and talking to them but that's not really viable at this point anymore. And so, you know, I had dabbled with telemedicine uh, for, you know, occasional patients, particularly ones who are essentially so sick that they couldn't make it to my office. And I had always felt like it was kind of uh, a second choice compared to sitting together in the room. But under the circumstances, I said, look, this is, this is the safe way to go. Let's see how it can work. And so we have completely converted to 100% telemedicine. And I have to say that I actually think it's pretty good. Um, you know, it took me some time to adjust, to, to adjust my style and to get comfortable with it. But in fact, um, you know, I do miss, you know, being in the same room with people. But there are other trade-offs that have turned out to be quite nice. For example, you know, because of the telemedicine, right, obviously it's convenient for people. They don't have to drive into my office and find parking. But really, I get to see people now in their home environments, where they live, where they're comfortable. And that helps me get to know them better and furthers our clinical connection. And I'll tell you a little, a brief little story. 
I was seeing um, a woman who I'd seen for years. She has breast cancer. She's doing really well. And so we were talking and she's sitting in her kitchen and we were um, discussing her care. And her five-year-old son crawled up on her lap and said, Mommy, I need snuggles. And that was a priceless moment. And you don't have that sort of thing in the office. So I've, I've really found this to be a good trade-off. And, of course, um, because it's telemedicine, sort of by the nature of it's telemedicine, this has really allowed me to expand the geography of my practice so that we're really no longer limited by geography at all. Uh, and I've been taking care of people um, from, you know, almost every state in the nation at this point, uh, as well as countries outside of the U.S. And, and that, you know, makes me happy because I can then take good care of people and, and, and spread this, uh, the benefits to, to more people. So it's, it's actually been a really good thing. So let me ask a couple of uh, follow-up questions. First of all, um, have you had anybody, any of your existing patients, balk at having to do it by telemedicine? Um, you know, that's a very interesting subject. Um, I have not had anyone balk at it in the sense of being uncomfortable with its effect on our relationship. Um, that has been a non-issue. What has been an issue is it because I take care of um, ma many, mostly older folks, um, um, and also some people who, uh, shall we say, are less wealthy, um, those two groups of folk often have more anxiety and or real difficulty around using the technology. Um, and so I have been doing some more telephone uh, medicine than I would like. And I, I still do think that that's uh, not quite as good as being able to see each other face to face and kind of read the body language and the facial expressions. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the thing that matters to me is being able to provide the kind of care that the patient needs. And so if that means I'm using the telephone instead of the telemedicine, then, you know, I do what we need to do. Um, there is a slight issue, um, you know, on a regulatory basis. Um, the uh, permission, if you will, to use telemedicine during COVID has actually, is actually temporary. Um, and uh, I've been sort of assured that that permission will not go away when, when the various executive orders are rescinded. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to continue the telemedicine that way. Um, the telephone becomes kind of dicey and, you know, one really does have to be able to prove that you're maintaining the kind of standard of care that you, you want to provide. And so, you know, I'm working on that and, and, and I think telemedicine is a, is a great approach um, for what I do. You know, look, if I were a surgeon, it would be useless, right? Um, but for what I mm -hmm. do, um, it, it's a great tool. And yeah. I've given up so my the second office, question. I, I, you know, I should mention, um, is that the brick and mortars, I let them go because this is so wonderful. And if, if somebody requires me to go back to a brick and mortar, then I'm going to be scrambling for space. But we'll worry about that. Right. If that right. So the second question is, you, you kind of began to touch on, on the technology. Do you have any patients who don't have the technology as far as, forget their skills, do they have... Uh, 
the video the video conferencing capability on their computers. You, have you found anybody that just doesn't have it? No, not really. And I think part of it is that um, at this point in history, even if people don't have a laptop um, or some other sort of uh, you know more traditional looking computer, they pretty much all have smartphones. Um, and so the, with a smartphone, you can do all the same stuff, uh, whether we're talking about Zoom or any of the more uh, medically oriented one, you know, you either operate it uh-huh. through an app or through a browser. And so um, the technology really hasn't itself been the problem. I think a real problem has been that, you know, there are people who have smartphones who use them as dumb phones and, and really don't um, understand them uh, you know, their capabilities. And I think really mostly are afraid of it. Um, and, mm. and, and that's something that, you know, I don't understand personally in the sense that I've always embraced technology um, going back, you know, for decades, but I can certainly mm-hmm. uh, empathize with, with its, you know, being, you know, anxiety provoking for people. Um, so my staff and I really try to, um, kind of hold people's hands and, and walk them through the process of connecting. Um, and generally speaking, it works. I mean, I would say that, um, you know, uh, we're doing 99% of our visits through telemedicine quite successfully. And then there's this 1% where, you know, for one reason or another, it's not working out. And then, you know, everybody's comfortable with a telephone. So we've been doing that as the backup. And it seems to be working just fine. Terrific. Uh, I, I think it's just amazing what you're doing. Uh, in one of our previous episodes, Doctor, you talked about uh, the importance of dealing with uh, a medical professional, somebody like yourself, as opposed to a bud tender who uh, sure. may not necessarily have the skill or the expertise. And and you, you stepped up to the plate and formed um, a professional organization for people like-minded with you who are cannabis uh, medical professionals? Talk. We haven't talked about this. I, I'm not sure we've ever talked about it in depth at all. All the times you've been on, so I figured now's the time to do it. So tell us about the sure. organization that you formed. So the organization is called the Association of Cannabis Specialists, and you know it came about because after I had established my practice, I had friends in this field um, who are not. Uh, practicing clinicians, but researchers and, and folks like that, who used to sort of laugh at me and say, you know, Jordan, you're the only person who cares this much and really wants to take care of their patients. And frankly, I found that, um, you know, really concerning and somewhat offensive, um, even though it was meant kindly. Um, and so I started to say, look, I can't be the only doctor out here who actually cares about their patients. It just can't be, right? So I started this organization with the idea of finding all of my colleagues, whether they're physicians or, or nurse practitioners or whatever other kind of clinician we're talking about, and really galvanizing everybody around this idea that just because it's cannabis or weed, man, right, doesn't mean that we need to throw away all of the important relationship that we have with our patients. And, and, and also, as we talked about um, in other segments, that, you know, there are right ways and less right ways of, of using this stuff, and we want to make sure that people get the best benefit and the least risk. And so 
we have uh, now developed into an organization that's uh, not just national in the U.S., but international. Um, and we provide a lot of educational services for, for our members that include, um, you know, science and how-to uh, in various forms. We provide mentorship for people who are newer to this kind of medicine. Um, and then we also are deeply involved sort of as a policy advocacy group because what we realize is that in order for us to do this well, we need the government, whether we're talking about states or, or, or national, um, to really provide us the tools that we need in order to make sure that our patients are getting what they need and not getting their arms twisted and all that sort of thing. So we've been deeply active right. in that um, and providing guidance to the FDA and the DEA and the CDC, um, as well as state governments uh, and filing amicus briefs to the various courts when things come up. So we've, we've kind of had our fingers out there in trying to set policy or, or guide policy to uh, to support patients and their clinicians. But we're almost out of time, and I have two more questions. The first question is, what type of person should become a member of your group? Uh, kind of practice? Good question. Well, you know, we're we're focused mostly on clinicians. Um, so if somebody is not a clinician and they want to join, we certainly welcome them. Um, and they would have access to all of the benefits, but you know, of course, what that would be, you know, what that would be, how that would be meaningful to them is obviously a personal choice. Um, but really, right. what we're focused on is people who um, people who practice cannabis medicine as sort of a focus of their clinical life, and also. Uh, people who, you know, might be a primary care doctor or a neurologist who are not going to practice cannabis medicine, but who want to or feel the need to become educated so that they understand where cannabis fits as a tool for their patients and, um, and then, you know, be able to refer to a trusted colleague who is a cannabis specialist. And so I think that there are sort of two groups of clinicians uh, that we're really targeting that way. You told me the last time you and I talked about this uh, uh, off air that it, your your membership is growing rapidly. Yes, and we're actually um, a, right this this month. We're going to introduce a brand new website that's going to streamline um, uh, membership uh, administration and access to the various member benefits. We've also added a whole new slew of member benefits, including more educational resources, uh, three new journals, uh, a whole bunch of those sorts of things. Um, so we're about to start a huge membership drive uh, in this month uh, going on to the, the beginning of the year. And so I think, you know, uh, the more we can reach out to clinicians and other interested parties, the more we can swell the ranks. That gives us more clout in Washington in particular. Uh, sure. And obviously it disseminates the science and the information better uh, to the clinicians and they're through, you know, to, to their patients so that everybody's getting the benefit that they need. We've been having a conversation with Dr. Jordan Tischler, our cannabis doctor on call. Doctor, tell us two things. How do people get a hold of you to talk about telemedicine, and how do they get a hold of you and your new group? Great. Well, let's start with the group, the Association of Cannabis Specialists. 
The website is cannabis-specialist.org. I know it's a little bit of a mouthful, but again, it's cannabis-specialist.org. And um, as I mentioned, we have a website now, but the better one is coming shortly. So um, visit the website and then come back and visit the new website all this month. That would be awesome. Again, cannabis-specialist.org. And then if you want to reach me, you know, professionally, the best way to do that is through my website, which is inhalemd.com. Again, inhalemd.com. And you can reach out to me directly through there. There are also over 100 articles on various cannabis medicine topics for you to peruse. So I look forward to hearing from you. As always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for this wonderful insight and, and perspective. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you. If you didn't hear all of this terrific interview with Dr. Jordan, you can go to w420radionetwork.com, go to the archive section and listen to this and other many appearances of Dr. Jordan on the show. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Dan Perkins with more information on the new Frontier Data software called Equio. Let me ask you this question. Would the success of your business be impacted if you knew the frequency of visits customers spent in competitor stores? Of course it would. The question is, where do you go to get this information? This is just one of the many pieces of information that you can get through the Equio software available at newfrontierdata.com. Remember to click on the Equio button and don't forget to ask for the special offer. I'm Dan Perkins. You're listening to America's Cannabis Conversation on W420RadioNetwork.com. Welcome back to the conversation. And joining us today is Dr. Potter, who is, like me, uh, an older person who is dealing with the aches and pains and complaints of elderly and are looking for alternatives to narcotics. Welcome to the conversation, Doc. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. So what are you doing now? What, well, what's, what I what's your do passion now, well, today? Well, I, 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 I'd really actually rather talk about the topic in seniors. Many seniors have gotten spooked over this notion that they're going to get high and that makes them, quote, paranoid or, or whatever. The fact is that there's cannabis before you heat it when it's just green, just the dried, what they call the flower that you buy at the dispensary, the green stuff. That stuff has CBDA and THCA in it. It has all the medicinal qualities of anti-inflammatory and this sort of thing, but there's no psychoactive quality. Unbelievably, you have to heat it. And once you heat that green stuff, chemically it changes from THCA to THC, which is psychoactive. So a person could just get the flour and put it in their salad and their soup like they would um, any other herb, magorium, or anything, just sprinkle it in your food. You can take it that way too. It's all part of learning how to use it. So do you, do you we're speaking with uh, Doc Potter about, uh, about uh, her experience in working in the cannabis field for a long time. So, um, is there? Do you see a preference as to how seniors pre- prefer to take the cannabis product? Well, Edible, I'm saying. Uh, by the way, when working in the field, I'm I'm not. I don't have a business. I don't sell anything. I'm an educator. Um, you know, I educate on all kind of topics. I'm a, actually a corporate trainer, 
uh, and started in Silicon. I helped launch Silicon Valley Corporate Training. And now I'm doing lots of lectures and education on cannabis so that people can learn about how to use this. Okay, so mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure people in a dispensary could better answer that. I go to dispensaries. I use cannabis in various ways. And it mm-hmm. seems to me like there's an awful lot of older people in there. <laughs> but that's just my looking around, okay? Now, one thing, too, is not necessarily, like, let's just take take sleeping. Lots of seniors have problems. I have problems sleeping, too. And there's something, mm-hmm. so it's not just all or nothing. I'll take a sleeping pill from the doctor or I'll, you know, smoke a dupe or something. There's some, a concept called layering. So you might... uh you know, have a, quote, toke or two, and then you might eat half a cookie, and then you might have a tincture, and and then you might sit in your hot tub. By the way, I have a hot tub in my living room. You might wow. sit in your hot tub and listen to soothing music, and you might take some melatonin, which is supposed to release the sleeping hormones or something, so that this is layering. You see, the cannabis, and, and, and there are various kinds. You can drink it, you can eat it, you can smoke it, you can rub it on. Uh, it's all part of a larger solution. That's why I call it becoming your own shaman. So Learning, how, learning much- how to use this wonderful substance that has been given to us and... and um, it's so much more benign than what the doctors have been giving us. So, where, how do you how do you become your own shaman? Who do you go well, to to get trained? Well, first of all, you have to start uh, noticing yourself. All right, you study yourself, like say with the sleeping. You you don't just start taking this stuff. First of all, uh, you start studying the problem two or three or a week. You know how long does it take to get to sleep? What stuff? This or that? Describing it. And, and that's like getting notes on yourself. Then you start low because you don't know exactly what you need. All of these things, uh, especially in the beginning, are very complicated. There's tinctures that are CBD plus THC, but they might be different ratios. It might be 1 to 1, 5 to 1, 10 to 1. All of these are very individualized, so you're experimenting. Experiment with a little bit, and then that night you notice, did it have any impact? And if it did, then you try to figure out what you did and do that again. This is this is like shamanistic medicine of a sort. I mean, I'm using a metaphor, but that's how one you, proceeds. You, do you do you think that um, do you think that um, seniors will invest the time? Is Absolutely. There, there what desire? else do seniors have to do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if seniors are uh, are uh, uh, sincere and interested, and and lots of them want to get off of the pharmaceuticals. Out here in the uh-huh. in the West Coast, there's a nurse practitioner that specializes in seniors and getting them off the pharmaceuticals. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, what senior? doesn't want to do that it's just as much better healthy all kinds of ways all right and there's there's alternatives okay i'll reveal something to you that um i i take uh certain drugs that i get a prescription to my doctor didn't like it at first but i figured out how and it's hgh you know what that is human growth hormone yeah and where do I get it? Out of Florida, because that's where seniors are retiring. It's expensive. Well, that is, you know, part of my whole 
bailiwick, not just, uh, I mean, I have been introduced to cannabis literally for decades, okay? But it's not just cannabis. And I actually like topical, rubbing it on. Uh, I've been having a problem with spasms, and I rub it into my leg, and it, it helps, you know? Or one time I rubbed it into the gum of my mouth because I had a toothache, and it just took the toothache away right away. But I, like a dummy, I lost my tooth anyway, <laughs> but it took the pain <laughs> away. <laughs> I'm just saying you need to, you know, there's all these different ways. People don't even know how to use it. A lot of people... There's an old um, uh, uh, 911 call that was in the news, and it was a cop, and he had gotten a pot from somebody he stopped on the street, and he took it home, and he and his wife made brownies. And then they made the typical mistake. They ate them all. Mm-hmm. And then he's making 911 call, and he's frantic. He goes, call an ambulance, call an ambulance. We're dying, we're dying. Call an ambulance. And the 911 keeps pressing and trying to, and pulling out. And he says, well, I'm a, car, I'm a police officer, and, and I stopped the perk. And, I, and the call him. We're dying. We're dying. Well, yeah, and we made the brownies. Well, this is very typical because people think of pot. They think of the picture of the stoner smoking. You take a couple tokes. It go, how do you get into your blood? It goes into your lungs and right into your bloodstream. So they mistakenly think that happens with edibles. Wrong. Edibles have got to go all the way through your digestion. At the shortest, it would be like 30 minutes. It could be two hours. By the time it gets to, quote, coming on, you can't get it out. And I did this to myself once. I thought I was dying. I ate too much, and I got these cramps. I just, it was so awful. And I learned. (laughs) So that call was very funny. But it was because of not understanding how it works. Eating is different from smoking. Sometimes you want to toke. Like I, I almost always now like to have one and a half. And you don't want to start with the, you start with a half. But I'm at one and a half cookie. And it comes on like about two hours after I'm in bed. See, and then it keeps me in bed. And this is what yeah, I've learned by cer- trial certain. and error. Trial and error. You see. You know, certain certain ways you you take it have greater impact short term, while others have much greater impact longer term, meaning hours well, uh, out. And well, hours. It, it, well, yes, and if you eat too much, because people go, well, where's the beef? Nothing's happened. I eat another and another, and then pretty soon they eat the whole plate. Right. Because they don't understand, yep. you see, how it works. If it goes into digestion, it's got to go all the way, all the way down to your intestines. That's where it gets right. into the blood. And by that time, it, there's just no getting it out. And I'm telling you, I mean, maybe I, I didn't have a psychoactive, you know, kind of freak out. I just thought I was like the cop, literally dying. Will this ever stop? This is so awful. <laughs> and but how long does it take is, to stop? You remind yourself. You will not die on pot. I, I, I mean, on opioids, you know why people die on opioids? The the sites for opioids, receptor sites, <coughs> are in the brain stem. And the brain stem controls breathing. You take too much, you stop breathing. Mm-hmm. There's no receptor sites for cannabinoids in the brain stem. They may be in muscles. They are in muscles, in the immune system, and the nerves, and all over the place. But you can just rest assured there's no recorded case of anybody dying from pot because they simply t- took too much. That's true. So never when been a you're case miserable like I was, you could go, 
one day this will be over, over, or whatever. And I'm not going to die never from did it. it again. And you don't do it to your dog either. People unwittingly do it to their dog. They, you know, and the dog is wobbling around and looking goofy. They think that's funny. No, the dog's miserable. <laughs> mm. THC is toxic to dogs. I didn't know that. But yeah, I'm well, that's why you want to buy THC from hemp. Because I mean, not THC, cannabinoids and f- cannabis and whatnot for dogs from hemp because it's less than three percent THC. But, mm-hmm. but for humans, you see, and and it's they the growers have amped it up. And while it's not clear that the dog has actually died, from th- there have been correlations, and it, the dog is not happy. Okay, it just mm-hmm. looks happy because it's goofy. But right. uh, I did it to my dog once. Yeah. Survive, well, I want to I want to thank you for spending your time with us today. Uh, we've been talking to Doc Potter about her experience with cannabis and how she uses it, and encouraging people, especially the elderly seniors, excuse me, yes, seniors yes, to seniors. consider it as as part of their of their replacement for opioids uh, and living a healthier lifestyle. Thank you so much well, for joining thank us. Thank you. Today. I've enjoyed chatting with you. You can see once I get going. You might not stop me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Okay. We'll be right back. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. So if you didn't get all of this uh, interview with this terrific interview with Doc Potter, you can go to W420RadioNetwork.com, go to the archive section and listen to the show and her other appearance when she was on the show, and also find out where you can buy her books. This is Dan Perkins. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Dan Perkins for America's Cannabis Conversation, and I want to tell you about a new sponsor, New Frontier Data, and their Equio amazing software to help you discover, engage, and compete in the cannabis marketplace. For the first time, you have the ability to discover on your computer desktop valuable information on state, city, and even zip codes to assess your opportunities for cannabis investment in that market. Through the Engage portion, you will be able to figure out what products in a marketplace consumers would be interested interested in buying. And finally, with Compete, you'll be able to look at prospect profiles and find new and innovative opportunities to test new products to attract new customers. Significant change is coming in the cannabis industry, and you need to get ready now and be prepared for this fantastic opportunity ahead of you. For more information on the EQO software for your business, go to newfrontierdata.com and look for the EQO section and expand your horizons. I'm Dan Perkins. Time now for the lowdown on another high-time experience. Here's 420 Lifestyle Correspondent Rich Walkoff. Well, today we've got a fascinating and uplifting tale of a young man who had a transformative experience in his life at the age of 18 after a troubled early years in childhood, joined the Army, went to Iraq, going to fight for the U.S. of A., and unfortunately had a a very tragic near you know, almost killed in Iraq, but that itself really changed the course of your life. So welcome in Cody Walker, a longtime cultivator, dispensary owner, and he's got experience running high-end extraction labs in the Bay Area of San Francisco. And Cody, before we get into the cannabis world, tell me about the the absolutely gut-wrenching experience that you, you had as an 18-year-old near Baghdad a number of years ago that was 
you know, it, it was a terrible experience, but it really changed the course of your life. Yeah. So um, back in 2004, I was shipped off to Iraq as a young 18 year old soldier, um, just fresh off boot camp. Uh, actually, about a month and a half after boot camp, I was shipped out to Iraq. Um, uh, one morning I was actually on top of a turret and, uh, we were headed out on a mission and somebody, uh, blew up, uh, what they call a VBIED. It's a vehicle borne improvised explosive device. So basically they turned their truck into a big bomb. Um, I, uh, I took some shrapnel. It's, uh, severed my nose off my face completely, sort of cut my lips from here to here and filleted them off my face. Um, I got shot in the cheek and out my mouth. And then I got shot once in my shoulder, sort of all in the same instance. Um, and uh, yeah. <laughs> that is amazing. You survived the, uh, the, the bombing and then the friendly fire from the uh, patrol officer. Just expound upon that a little bit, because this is something I've never heard. You should have been dead a long time ago, brother. But here you are in front of a beautiful plant. Yeah that was also instrumental in helping you recover from the PTSD. Yeah. So, uh, I did take a little bit of friendly fire. You know, it, it does happen. You can't be mad at anybody for it. Um, but I was, uh, I was shot with a nine mil from my commander through my cheek and, uh, he was trying to sort of fire over my truck and, uh, I stood up, got in the way and, you know, back in the day, I used to watch magicians catch bullets with their teeth. And uh, I am here to tell you that that's not true. That's that's a lie. They cannot catch them with their teeth. Yeah. I got mine shot out trying to do it. So, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it was it was uh, it was a very interesting day, you know, real early in the morning. Um, we were so close to my my uh, forward operating base that the the turret guys on um, on the on the post was actually, you know, they were engaged in the firefight also. So realistically, if I would have been, you know, 10 miles out of the, out of the base, I don't know if I'd be here today. Um, there's not a lot of people that get shot in their face and get to talk about it later on and get to do what we get to do here. And, um, you know, it was very, very instrumental in sort of the, the way that I've uh, been raised and the way that I live my life now. It's, um, you know, a very disciplined life at this point. And, uh, and we're really, really proud of what we've been able to accomplish. Uh, yeah, well, tell then. me, you're medevaced out, you come home, the government gives you some money, and what do you do with it? And how did it change the course of your life in a favorable way as you dealt with the physical, emotional, and psychological scars from that horrible day? Yeah, so as an 18-year-old boy, I was... Uh, I was what they call a cav scout. I did reconnaissance for the, for the infantry, for the cavalry, for, you know, tank battalion, stuff like that. If they wanted to know what was on the other side of that hill, I went and told them. Now in, in civilian life, there's not a lot that I can do with that. So I didn't leave the military with a, with a grand job that I could go and be, you know, um, in telecommunications or something like that. I was a, I was a recon scout. There's not a lot of people that need, you know, that service outside of the, uh, the military. So, um, I was very fortunate. I got a large lump of sum, of uh, money after I got out of the military due to a, uh, uh, government program that I, a, that I sort of tried out for. Um, and, uh, I was broke. I didn't have a penny to my name. I was actually in, uh, McDonald's one morning. And this program, basically, you don't, you fill out paperwork, 
they, they send you cash or they send you, you know, money into your bank account a couple of months later, you never know if it's going to come or when it's going to come. So I was sitting in McDonald's and I was looking at the dollar menu and my wife calls me up and she says, honey, we have $50,000 in the bank account. I was like, okay, um, I'll take a number six instead of a dollar menu item. You know, I was able to, I was able to, to reach for the stars in that one. And, you know, um, so right then and there, I turned around, talked to my wife, said, listen, cannabis has, has been an, in a huge part of my life ever since I was a kid. Um, I'm sort of a second generation guy, thanks to my dad. Um, you know, he, he grew up and taught us this, this great plant um, and, and to have the respect for the plant that we do. And um, so I said, hon, let's, let's open up a grow. Let's do this. You know, let's, let's go buy some lights. Let's go rent some space. Um, so I, I moved her out of Southern California and we moved up to Oregon and, uh, we sort of started our first large, you know, cannabis business after trying to sort of poke around and play around for a little bit. Um, so we started our grow operation on the government's dime, thank goodness. And, uh, and here we are today. Yeah. Kind of ironic that other veterans who go to the VA with PTSD or trauma in any way, shape or form are not able to receive cannabis as a medical treatment for their mental, psychological, and, and other injuries and the like. Yet here you are launched a career in it. Just tell me what role it played in your recovery and how it to this day is instrumental in keeping you on track. Because a lot of people think, yeah, great, get, get high, weed's a great party drug. Well, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, especially with the new legalization, it's, it's really referred to a lot of the time as recreational cannabis. And I try to sort of steer people away from that because it, it's adult use cannabis at this point. Um, yes, we can have fun with it. I do enjoy getting high myself, um, but I use it as a medicine and I use it as a, as a tool in my tool belt to, to really get over the anxiety, um, to help me sleep. Um, I utilize CBD a lot to sort of keep my, my body in line. Um, I, I really push for the anti-anxiety properties, especially with veterans. We deal with a lot of PTSD, uh, sleep, uh, sleep issues, um, and just general mental health issues. It's a, it's a very, very rough life, um, especially for somebody who's seen combat. So, you know, we, we really push it on onto our veterans. Um, and there's a couple of different programs that we work through to try to get veterans safe access to cannabis. Um, because you're right, the government won't allow us to do it yet. And uh, as sad as it is, and as much research as there is behind it, you know, I, I really wish we could push it a little bit further. But um, right now, you know, we're, we're doing what we can. And, uh, and I really enjoy watching the progression of how cannabis changes the lives of veterans. Uh, in particular, and, and it's primarily along the depression side also, you know, it's uh, PTSD is a, is a, is a tough one to battle because there's so many different uh, problems that happen with it. And if you can start to get some of those aligned into a good uh, alignment, you're sleeping better, which means you're eating better, which means you're happier, which means you're not as depressed you know, the, the little things start to come in and, and, uh, and roll up and, and really uh, change veterans' lives. And so I work with personal friends. Um, we work, like I said, with a couple of different companies to try to get some safe access for uh, medicine, because at this point it is medicine. Absolutely. And you're giving back and that's awesome. And speaking of back, right back behind you is a beautiful garden 
And you got to tell us where you're at and what it's all about. Yeah, so we've got two indoor cultivation sites here. Uh, both rooms are about 110 lights. Um, and we've got about 420 plants in each room. We cycle through them every eight and a half to nine weeks. And we grow about 300 to 350 pounds per room. Um, this is utilized in both, you know, our brands, our personal brands. And then we also help some brands, you know, further their, uh, further themselves also. So we've got, um, low key, we've got Dosha and we've got Bay ride as our three brands and uh, shameless plug here. But, you know, I, I gotta be honest, it's, it's some of the finer medication that I've been able to produce. Uh, we've got a great team behind us. And, uh, and we're ready to, to just give the world what we do. We, we love what we do. Well, awesome. I understand why. That looks beautiful. I wish we, could, I wish we had smell-o-vision because we <laughs> you know, appreciate it a little bit more. So how about this? You go seed to flowering in nine weeks with the indoor grow? Yeah, well, not from seed to flower. We've got a separate uh, room over here that we do all our vegging in and all of our cloning. We keep our moms in there. Um, so we're able to sort of prep the plants in a different area and then move them into our flowering room so that when we do want to switch them over and take them from a vegging plant into a flowering plant, uh, we're not wasting space. I mean, you know, we do have to understand that this is commercial manufacturing at this point too. And so time is money and, uh, and the more turns we can get out of a room, the better off everybody is. Sure. Now you got to talk to me about extraction because when we met a few weeks ago at the, uh, at the at Canna Connect on the Empress Yacht in Richmond Harbor in, in Northern California, you, you turned me on to things I had never heard of before the sauce and the diamonds and the batter and all this stuff. So for the uninitiated, oh, yeah. let's throw a little bit of what the extraction is all about and, and what you end up with and, and how it compares to, you know, a typical flower of the, of marijuana. Yeah. So we've gotten into this fantastic world of separation and extraction and, and, uh, and compound manipulation. And so what we're able to do is we're able to take a whole plant like these back here. Um, we get them into the freezer right away. Once they get cut down, they get into the freezer within a half an hour. Um, and what that does is it starts to preserve some of our terpene profiles. The terpene profiles are what really give the flavors, um, the aromas, and, and some of the medicinal and effective, um, effectiveness of the plant itself. Um, some terpenes will make you tired. Some terpenes will um, help deliver THC and CBD to your endocannabinoid system. And there's, there's a multitude of different terpenes. There's, um, and, they're, and they're found in everyday lives too. But uh, off of the cannabis plant, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to concentrate those into um, a form that can be utilized by patients that need higher doses. And so we can manipulate the percentage of THC depending and the, and the percentage of terpenes depending on what flavor profile we want to hit for this cannabis extract. Um, there's a million different ways to extract a plant uh, from pressing it out in a rosin press um, to washing it in water. We utilize solvents. There's ethanol extraction. There's a multitude of different extraction methods, but realistically what we're trying to get is 
a broad profile of what that plant looks like on the stem, but, um, but a concentrated form of that, uh, to say the least. Hey, Cody, it was great catching yep. up with you. Again, I want to just grab what's behind you and just run with it, baby. That's awesome. That's <laughs> beautiful crop you've got there. And it's an amazing story. I mean, you almost gave your life in the in the service and you got a second opportunity. And I'm glad you're giving back and, and using the cannabis in, in a healthy, positive way for many veterans as well. So really appreciate your time and, and best of luck to you. Absolutely, buddy. Whenever you're back in town, let me know and you can come romp through the forest with us. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful green scene. And we'll link your contact information at the W420radionetwork.com site. And also, if you go to W420radionetwork.com slash archive, you can listen again or hear some excerpts. Cody Walker, he's the whiz. He's the lab director at Bayride and our beautiful cannabis brand, Loki and Dosha in Oakland, California. I'm Rich Walkoff, and we'll be right back. Hello, this is Dan Perkins. Here's more important information about the Engage section of the amazing software for new frontier data called Equio. These are just examples of some of the things that Engage can do for you. You will be able to see and understand consumption preferences at the county, state, and even the zip code level. You'll want to follow product trends filtered by age and gender so you know exactly what to offer and how to market it. How about learning the market density of the location you might be considering to expanding your business? Use the Visit Index score to determine the trends that impact your outreach and messaging. Engage with your customers base to expand and repeat your value. You can learn more about product trends filtered by age and gender. This valuable information it helps you to know exactly what to offer and how to market it. Things are changing rapidly and you need the latest information from an independent source to keep yourself informed of the changing markets. For more information on the EQO software package, go to newfrontierdata.com, click on the EQO software, and don't forget to ask about the special offer. This is Dan Perkins. Welcome back to the conversation and joining us again on the America's Cannabis Conversation is Ben Thomas, who is the director of the Department of Agriculture for the state of Montana. Welcome to the conversation, Ben. Thanks for having me. So you're the knowledgeable guy in the state of Montana about all things hemp. So let's talk about what are you seeing in your planning at the Department of Agriculture for what's going to happen in the hemp business? And do you envision the possibility sometime down the road of growing cannabis? Yeah, so happy to speak on that. One thing that, an interesting thing that happened in the most recent election is, uh, is Montana voters uh, voted in favor of, of uh, uh, recreational marijuana. So that's going to uh, present some challenges for us and in, in how we manage these two programs separately. We won't be handling the marijuana side of it, but there has to be close coordination there. The cross-pollination issue is uh, one we're uh, struggling with just in the, on the hemp side of it, uh, so that will be complicated to a d degree, but um, I know we'll be able to work those out over time. One of the things that I keep hearing about around the country, and, and it's it's a bias based on who you're talking to. The recreational people say quietly, we don't need medical. We can serve all the medical pa patients under recreational. And, and the medical people are saying that the products that we sell on the medical side, in many cases, would not appeal to the recreational users. 
So you've mm-hmm. got this, comp- this competition between the two for the customer. And now you're going to, if, since you passed it, you're going to have, perhaps competition is not the right word, but you're going to have two different agencies of the state government that are going to oversee hemp and cannabis. That's yeah. going to have some real challenges to it. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, the only difference between the two is the the level of THC. And whether you're talking recreational or medical or the kind of more uh, straightforward ag ag uses, um, you know, people are placing different uh, values on all of those components. And there's, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of overlap, a lot more overlap, I think, than anyone would have anticipated. Uh, so, yep, there will be challenges with that. I, I know we're up to, uh, to meet whatever, whatever they are. Now, there are people around the country, Ben, who are looking at recreational and medical uh, in a little different way. And they believe that uh, with Biden as president, there's a possibility that cannabis might be deregulated at the federal level. If it becomes if it becomes deregulated at the federal level, do we need two different departments, one for one for cannabis and one for hemp? I think we do, uh, just because the goals are are so different and and the use is so varied. I mean, one thing that I've, I'm really excited about the, the future of in the state is the straight up uh, grain production. Uh, whether we're talking about you know uh, just the the hemp parts that go into various food products or um, whether it's reduced to a, a hemp protein to be added to something, um, or uh, whether we're talking about uh, the fiber to be used for hempcrete, um, I could go on. All of those things have uh, nothing to do with uh, with THC or CBD or any of those uh, that might broach the um, either recreational or or medical uses. Those uses are how how we uh, use agricultural products uh, as a raw commodity. So in that sense, to me, it's very much an ag issue. Um, and and you go beyond that into the space of, of medical, you know, THC. And, uh, well, to me, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's not where our expertise necessarily is in a, in a direct way. So. When do you, under the, the legislation that was passed, when do you expect that Montana will have uh, adult use for sale. Uh, that's uncertain right now because uh, we uh, we have uh, a, a new executive coming in, and I haven't been following uh, his perspective on any of this. We um, we have a new legislature, obviously, and and uh, it's certainly possible that they'll come in and say, "Well, we know uh, that the voters took this position, but um, let's uh, you know take our time and make sure this is implemented." Uh, thoughtfully, so, uh, or they could do the opposite and pass a bill that, uh, you know, requires executive action within six months or something. I I think it's way too soon to tell. They'll start session in January. We we know that based on history, when a ballot initiative is put forward, the time between the the ballot issue passing and the first dispensary opening is approximately two years. It takes that long for the the political process to get done. I mean, we we had New Jersey just recently in the election approved adult use 
And there's a faction in New Jersey that wants the dispensaries, which were all medical, to be able to start selling product in 30 days. But the problem is that there's no enabling legislation terms and, and rules written by the state legislature uh, on how they're going to modify and modify those existing and new licenses to be able to sell. So there's a lot of a lot of red tape that has to go through before you can open it. You know, uh, we were talking about hemp a little bit and the various uses. Uh, I mentioned in the pre-show that I had uh, interviewed a gentleman who was a professor of agriculture at Kansas State University who just completed a preliminary uh, research project funded by um, the FDA, and they were looking at the recycling of the hemp extracts, meaning the the pieces that are left over, flour and leaf and, and stock, that had been pressed in order to get the CBD oil. And they're now looking at it as a feedstock for cattle. And mm-hmm. what their their preliminary findings are is that the processors cannot get 100% of the cannabis or the, the CBD out of the flower, for example, or even the leaves. So there's a residual amount. And when you turn it into feed, the cows... Uh, are not only going to apparently produce more milk because any infections or problems they have can be mitigated by the amount of CBD that they're taking in. But what they're interested, what they're excited about is that this is the leftover, the residual that normally in the processing would be sent to a landfill. And here they're virtually recycling the leftovers into a feed for cows and goats. Uh, and, and they're beginning to explore other possible uses of this for not only feeding animals, but can they extract enough uh, CBD to make it commercially viable to reprocess it? So th- I thought it was fascinating that we've t- we're talking about using it for animal feed. Uh, I'm really excited about that work. Uh, so we have a lot of interest here uh, with uh, certain uh, uh, processors and growers on that feed side of it, uh, because you know the the this is all about making the margins work. Um, and the more you can uh, you know extract a value out of something instead of you know throwing away the the byproducts, it's going to help those margins. The regulatory side of it on the hemp on the feed side of it, um, you know it's it's. Uh, it's frustrating, uh, but you know we need that research done to to show uh, that it's it's healthy for animals and in what levels it's healthy, how they need to be supplemented with other other things. So I'm I'm glad to hear so much work is going on. We've been following it. Where uh, we participate on the um, the uh, national association that uh, kind of is a part of that regulatory approval process, and it really does rely on uh, good research being done. So. What do you think in your term as a director of agriculture has been your biggest challenge when you're dealing with hemp? Uh, the regulatory challenges. Uh, uh, and I could go on for two hours about that, but, uh, you know, the, and, and to give a full context here, I, I used to work for the U.S. Senate as various uh, issues were discussed. I then moved to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, and I've, I've worked directly with uh, the the federal officials who have 
um, uh, taking uh, taking this forward. And now I've been here to see it from this perspective. And um, and I I don't fully um, I am I am not on board with the approach taken at the federal level as this has been implemented. Um, I do I am confident that they uh, did what they uh, think is best. Um, I I just wish there was more of a conversation with states. Um, you know, we're, we're like little laboratories around the United States, and I think it's appropriate to, to let us innovate for a few years and and then take our uh, our successes and failures and, and uh, learn from them. Um, but um, it is what it is. I think there's uh, still work to be done. Uh, I was just on the call with uh, USDA officials this week um, giving my, you know, more of my perspective as if they don't have enough already on what they should be doing. Uh, but um, yeah, those regulatory challenges are are very real. Is that is that the bureaucracy, or is it just a basic fundamental lack of knowledge in, to to make competent decisions? Oh, it's not lack of knowledge. Um, and I mean, these are smart, dedicated uh, public servants. Uh, the 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 issue here is that it's um, is there's so many unknowns. Um, there's lack of science where where normally uh, the science would be a little bit clearer and, and uh, make uh, decision making a little bit easier. Um, and I, I don't think now is time for a one fits all approach that can be implemented nationwide. I just don't think we're there yet. Um, and that's why in in the farm bill the uh, there was a, to me a very clear preference for state plans, uh, for states to do this on their own within the parameters set up in the Farm Bill. Um, And instead, the approach seems to be the flip side, uh, trying to develop a national program that will almost overshadow the work we do. I don't think that's going to benefit the industry. Uh, uh, Instead, uh, I think, especially, I mean, uh, anything dealing with cannabis, uh, it's, it's, the, the local politics matter. Uh, so there are some things I could implement within the law that I don't think the state of Montana would be okay with. And if I took that approach, uh, I would probably get my hand slapped by the legislature here, and it would, you know, uh, prohibit uh, production at all. Um, and so a, a national approach like that, I think it will create challenges, maybe not in Montana, maybe, uh, but definitely in some other states. Well, unfortunately, Ben, we're out of time. We've been speaking to Ben Thomas, who's the director of the Department of Agriculture for the state of Montana. First of all, let me thank you for joining us today and tell people how they can follow what's going on in Montana about hemp. Check us out on Facebook. Visit our website. We have a lot of information on our website, a lot of things we did discuss today, our hemp committee, our Montana certified plan that's coming up. Uh, there's a lot that's on the horizon, so definitely click around and learn about all the exciting things going on uh, in our state. And what is the address for the hemp website for the state of Montana? You would think I would know that off the top of my head. I don't. <laughs> sorry. Uh, uh, Google Mont- Montana Department of Agriculture hemp, and it will be the first click. Okay. I'm confident. Good. Good. Thank you for joining us. If Thank you missed you. it. You're welcome. If you missed any part of this interview with Ben Thomas, a really good and informative interview, you can go to W420RadioNetwork.com and you can hear this entire interview and go back to the archive section and you can listen to other appearances that Ben has been on and other shows. 
Hello, this is Dan Perkins with more information on the new Frontier Data software called Equio. Let me ask you this question. Would the success of your business be impacted if you knew the frequency of visits customers spent in competitor stores? Of course it would. The question is, where do you go to get this information? This is just one of the many pieces of information that you can get through the Equio software available at newfrontierdata.com. Remember to click on the Equio button and don't forget to ask for the special offer. I'm Dan Perkins. W420radionetwork.com